even though it didn't call him by name. In the Old Testament, so many times there's a phrase used, angel of the Lord, a messenger sent from God. And let's turn to Judges chapter 13. There was one of those examples that we looked at that I want to revisit because there's a question asked in this example. In Judges 13, this is where Samson's parents are finding out from a visit from the angel of the Lord that they are going to, even though up to now that she has been barren and they haven't had any kids, that they're going to have a son and this angel gives instructions on how to raise this child. And Manoah, Samson's would-be father, asks a question here in verse a verse 17, Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name, that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor? And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? That's a little intriguing, isn't it? That the angel would tell him that, well, my, my name really, in other words, it's not for you to know. It's secret. And we're going to just try to answer that because... The things we went through in Bible study, and I maintain that this is very, very likely an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And the first question that jumps into your mind is, well, why then would the Bible simply not say this was Jesus? Why, if that was him, why would he not respond to Manoah and say, my name is Jesus? To, I think, really answer that question or to get as much information as we can about it, you first have to understand how the Old Testament treats names. From the very beginning of our Bible, a name of a person, a name of a place, carried all the meaning. When God even made the first one, Adam. That's the Hebrew word for man, for mankind, is Adam. Adam. His wife, Eve, it tells us, the Bible does, that he named her Eve, comma, because she was the mother of all living. Her function, her characteristic, her behavior, it's all encapsulated in the name. We're just not used to that. My parents did not go look up what the name John was before they named me or any of my brothers. We, Our culture simply doesn't do that. It might be because there's six, seven billion people on the earth now and all the distinctive meanings of names are kind of used up, taken up. I'm not sure if that's the reason, but we simply don't do that in our culture today. But it hasn't, it's all, it, the, the vast majority of time on earth, it has been that way. Just follow the time down here. Back in early Genesis, there was a guy named Methuselah. And the Bible tells us, shows us that that man, Methuselah, who was Noah's grandfather, that he lived up right to the flood, that he, he died the same year the flood came. And of course, his name means when he dies, it's coming. When he dies, it will be sent. This judgment that had been talked about through his father Enoch who had prophesied. So Methuselah's name meant when this guy dies, it, it, it's going to be sent forth. You know That gives us a clue that in Noah's time, that flood was not a surprise to everybody. His family had been preaching this. You get down to Noah, and the Bible clearly tells us no, they named him Noah because he will give us rest or comfort. The earth was going to get rest from wickedness. It's going to be wiped clean. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 17. 
And it gets very personal with Abram. Genesis chapter 17. And we're just looking at some examples so that we have a a good, firm understanding of how the Bible treats names. Genesis 17 and verse 5. God talking to Abram, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. Now as Americans, do we really understand what that's saying? When he changed it to Abraham, he inserted something in his name that give it the definition, the meaning of, he's going to be the father of many nations. So this begins now a change in Abraham's life. You realize at this point, he's about 98, 99. He got the message from God that he would have this promised kid when he was 75. That's a long time. That's 24 years or so that he's waiting for this promise and it's not happening. And in the year that it begins to happen, you'll see in verse 21, he also changed Sarah's name earlier, but in verse 21, but my covenant will I establish with this son Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. So when God changes Abraham's name, how close were they to having this kid? It was when Sarah was conceiving seed, when she got pregnant. The only reason I came to this chapter is just so we get a handle on it. His name changed at the very moment that God began to orchestrate that plan in his life. The father of many nations manifestation, the event, the actual behavior coming to pass coincided with him receiving that name. Same with Sarah. God changed her name. In the Bible, these things have meaning. When they hear about this, and Sarah is 90, Abraham's 99, and they're going to have it, you'll read in these same chapters, 17 and 18, that what happened when Sarah heard she was going to have this baby? She laughed. She overheard God and Abraham talking about he's going, she will have a child this set time next year. And the Bible tells us in chapter 18, somewhere about verse 12, that Sarah heard that when she was in the tent, and she laughed. And because of that, what did they name the child? Isaac. Isaac means laughter. You begin to get a, a, a handle or a sensation of how everything in their lives, the names had meaning. Back then, the, the place where they lived, I'm sure, the name of town. You know, we, we have a river that runs through our town, a little blue. There's some meaning behind that. Not exactly sure what it all is, but whoever gave it that name, that meaning, it had some, rev, uh, some relationship to maybe the big blue, not too many miles away. Sarah and Abraham both get their name changed. The kid, the miracle kid that they have, has a special name that means laughter because these two old people sitting around nursing this child, it was a funny idea to, to even them. And it was seen in the community as that's quite a thing, that God gave this couple not just a child, their first child. They couldn't have kids. And their first one comes when she's 90, He's 99. This word laughter is associated with the event. 
As that kid grew and grew, even in his 20s, 30s, they call him laughter. Isaac. It's a reminder of what? It's a reminder of where he came from. The meaning behind his entire existence. God came to us, gave us this almost laughing promise that when we heard it, we laughed. But God was faithful and it came through. You go down to Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And we know that Esau, it tells us, was he was kind of reddish and he was very hairy. And that's what his name means. Jacob was the heel catcher. He grabbed, it says, Esau's heel as they were coming out. It has a connotation of being a deceiver. And we have events in Jacob's life where he deceived Laban. and He was deceived by Laban with his wives, Leah and Rachel. Their names always meant stuff, even the places. Think about uh, when Jacob goes to wrestle with this angel. Let's go to Genesis 32. Jacob is going to go meet the next day. He's meeting Esau, his brother who has vowed to kill him. And that night before, Jacob, a very desperate man, he was left alone in chapter 32, verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, and that means the some divine, some angelic, some being that came from heaven, that person touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. The Lord said, or excuse me, he said, let me go. For the day breaketh, and he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. And here's why. For, that means because, as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and has prevailed. The name Israel means God uh, contends with God. And that's what he was doing. He literally, I think this was another incarnation or a pre-incarnation when Jesus showed up in the Old Testament and Jacob wrestled with him. That's a strange event. And look at the name chains associated with this. Because Jacob changed somewhat in his life here. He wrestled with God and he received a name that meant he prevailed. You know, he didn't give up. Tells us he wrestled through the night. He refused to let him go. And then look at verse 29. Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. I think that's similar to Manoah in Judges. This being, this person. It's calling this person an angel because he doesn't have a name. And in both cases, when someone asks, well, what's your name? Both instances, there's either it's a secret. Why are you even asking this? It was clear that it's not intended for the people, mankind, at this time, to know who this person is by name. You may sit there and think, well, John, why are you even going over this? Sounds like you're just adding confusion. We're raising questions here with no answers. But we're going somewhere with this. If this is, if this is in fact Jesus in the Old Testament, 
And in our Bible study Tuesday, we looked at John, the Gospel of John chapter 1 where it talks about His eternal nature. He was in the beginning. The Bible clearly teaches He not only existed, but He even had a function, a purpose, a behavior. John 1.3, all things were created through Him. Why not call Him Jesus? Let's go to Matthew chapter 2 and let's look where Jesus does get His name, when He gets His name. Matthew chapter 2. And as we're turning, let's just remember a few more examples of Jacob, that place where he wrestled. He called that place Bethel. That means house of God. Matthew chapter 1, they're pointing from the back. That's why you teach your kids sign language. Matthew chapter 1 And this is where the angel in verse 21 comes to talk to Joseph, the husband-to-be of Mary, saying, don't get rid of Mary. There's nothing evil going on here. And in verse 21, she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. I, I find it interesting that the angel demands, he He makes sure that they know what he is supposed to be called. It's not a randomness. It's not given to chance. He will be called Jesus. Why? There's a comma in your Bible and it says for. That means that's just like saying because he shall save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means what? Yes, Savior. Remember when the angel came to the shepherds when Jesus was born that night? The angel told those shepherds, a Savior is born unto you in Bethlehem. And they said, you go tell everybody. You go see Him just like we told, just like we described it. But you tell the whole world. A Savior is born. The word salvation is in the meaning of the name Jesus. Now we have some information. Why wasn't, why didn't anywhere in the Old Testament did it record Jesus talking to Manoah or Jesus talking to Joshua? Or somebody named Jesus talking to Moses out of that burning bush. Or Jesus wrestling with Jacob. Not saying he wasn't in those places, but why didn't it specify him as the person called Jesus? Because at that time, he was not getting on a cross. He was not dying for anyone's sins yet. The Bible tells us in Galatians, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, made under the law. There was a specific time, a very specific time that he would come and do that. And when he does do that, as soon as he is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, what does the angel say? You make sure that when this kid comes out, his name is Jesus. Because he means salvation. Look at the next verse. Verse 22, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall with child be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name. Here's even another name, almost a nickname, Emmanuel, which being interpreted, or it has the meaning, God with us, even Emmanuel, has a meaning that goes along, that is synchronized with his activity. Because what is the event of Jesus being born? Again, we already know he was there at the beginning, in the creation with the Father. He existed before creation. When He came to put on flesh, 
That is the event of God coming down to dwell with mankind, to become one of us, to walk with us, to pay the penalty for our sin. Let our sin be put on Him and we could be cleansed in that way. The penalty, the due reward that was headed for us, it now gets substituted on the substitution death. God with us. That's why He was called that in the New Testament. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. The book of Revelation even has some interesting commentary on this idea of names. Really, what we've looked at so far is this. That when God gave a name, when people received the name, a person or even a place, it had meaning. And the meaning was surrounded by the significance of what took place. Think of Abraham up on the mountain with Isaac when he was going to sacrifice him. What did Abraham call that place when there was a ram caught in a thicket, substituted, he was sacrificed instead of his son? God had provided a different substitute for his son. Abraham, it says, he named that place Jehovah-Jireh because he said, it shall be seen that God will provide himself a lamb. Jireh, Jehovah-Jireh, it means a provider. And Abraham got a picture while he's up there that someday God's going to do what I was asked to do here. Provide this sacrifice. So places, names, when you read your Bible, pay attention to those things. It's not willy-nilly, it's not by chance. Every name, every word, every place has very specific meaning as we'll shortly see here. Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh. And in reading these chapters, that overcomer is a little bit synonymous with the believer or a Christian, somebody that makes it to heaven. At least in some sense. The overcomer will I give to eat of the hidden manna, will give him a white stone, and in the stone what? A new name written. That no man knows save he that receiveth it. Now after what we've seen so far, what do you think is the significance? In heaven, one of our rewards, God handing us a place name. Written on stone. Tell you where my mind jumps to it. it may very well have something to do with what my job is in the next life. Next chapter, chapter 3. Look at verse 12. He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Slow down here a second. Yes, in this, in the rewards and the, the next life, your name seems to get changed. That really shouldn't shock us what we've seen so far. Abram and Sarah had their names changed. Jacob had his name changed. And in every case, it coincided with what? A huge significance in their life going forward. 
Abram spent 24 years and nothing happened on that promise. As soon as God came and said, Sir, you're now I'm changing your name and it's going to be associated with the meaning of the father of many nations, Sarah was pregnant. He made his covenant with him then and he changed his name according to that. Go to the New Testament think of what Jesus told Simon. We're calling you Peter, buddy. And you'll see that toward the end of his life, Peter gets a lot close to be, closer to becoming a rock than he was beforehand. Simon, he became Peter, rock. So, For what we know, Peter had a very godly death. He stood until the end and he was crucified upside down. He never recanted. You remember when Jesus was there and they took him away, Peter had a lot tougher time with that kind of decision. He denied Jesus three times in a very short space. He even cursed and then ran out. Peter, toward the end of his life, he became a lot more like that rock. So when we read here, we're going to get a new name. The end of that verse says we're going to get his new name. Now, I'm, this, my, my mind starts to think, well, let's see. If names have meaning and they're associated with what takes place in a person's life, whether it's their activity, their character, their nature, whatever they do, something that they do from the time they receive their name going forward, it's contained in the meaning of that name. Sure seems like it. My mind starts to think, what is Jesus' new name going to be kind of like? What's it going to be describing? We're in Revelation. Go to chapter 19. And John gets the vision of Jesus in verse 11. John 19.11, I saw, he is seeing this. I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. He looks a little different, doesn't he, than maybe what the disciples saw him last? even after he was resurrected. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. His name is called the Word of God. That's why the Bible always teaches us that when people saw Jesus walking in sandals, what were they seeing? A physical manifestation of the words that God had spoke coming to life. What Jesus did, what God wanted people to think of when they thought of God. When Jesus spoke, He even said, I say nothing lest I hear what my Father says to me. He was a manifestation, the perfect image of God. The Word put on flesh. That Jesus, it would seem we you you can you can put a, a you can start to describe him as that's what God wants for mankind to to see when they think of God, and I think that's the way in the Old Testament, when Jesus, as quote the angel of the Lord, came to Abraham, or when he came to Moses, when he came to Manoah, his wife, that was God's way of talking to people through His Son. Jennifer and I were talking in the van on the way over. There's even a parable about that that kind of seems to confirm that idea of a father, a king, sending his son to talk to people. 
Remember Jesus talked about the parable, was it maybe the parable of the vineyards or the stewards? A nobleman goes into a far country and he sends some servants back to see how things are going. And the people that were there that were the, the workers, the laborers, they beat those servants and they cast them out. And finally, the nobleman says, well, I, I'll send my son. Him they will revere. And of course, it tells us that they took him and they killed him just like they did Jesus. But it's the same picture. When the nobleman wants to talk to mankind, to people, seems like he sends his son. That's his ambassador, his envoy. That's how he communicates with people. Interesting, if nothing else. Let's now turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Hopefully, in the half hour up to now, we have, if nothing else, we've maybe given a sense of significance to every word in the Bible. It really is. Every word, uh, it needs to be paid attention to. And here in Luke chapter 4, let's look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And we're going to somewhat recreate what's going on here. Jesus went to the synagogue, which now we call church. He sat down, they brought to him a, I'm sure it was a large scroll, the whole book of Isaiah was written on there. And even though people had it memorized, they had it memorized. You didn't carry these things around. If you were wealthy, you probably had one at home, your own family scroll maybe. But it certainly wasn't like what we have where it was reprinted in a pocketbook or on our phone. There's no way to get. He opens it up and he starts to read to them. No doubt, many, most, if not all of them, knew what he was reading. They studied their scriptures. And he begins to read in Isaiah. This is what he wrote, read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And you know what does not occur to most of us? We can turn to Isaiah 61 and see exactly what he was quoting. Keep a finger here. Keep a finger right there and turn with your other hand back to Isaiah chapter 61. This is where Jesus was reading out of. Now again, we started looking at this idea of Jesus being seen everywhere. New Testament, Old Testament, as that person, as the angel of the Lord coming to visit Joshua, Moses, Abraham, and why is that important? Because we don't separate the God, quote, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. They're one and the same. Inseparable. Their character, their quality, their speech, their language, their their essence. They just manifest in different forms. And all too often it's becoming a popular thing for people to separate what they see as Jesus in the four Gospels as well, he's different, he's calm, he's soft, he's fuzzy, he, he doesn't hurt anybody, he never told anybody to wipe out an entire city like the God in the Old Testament. 
They've got to be different, right? They're not different. What you see in the Gospels is a sliver. See, it, it, there's tons of truth there. That is God in the flesh. But it is still just a portion of what the Bible has to say about God. A decent analogy is if when, when I come up here, you see me probably as good as you'll ever see me. I, I, I actually take a shower and shave. Sometimes I brush my teeth and comb my hair. And you get a pretty decent representation, a pretty good example, a vision, an example of maybe my best foot forward. It's not always that way. Come home, follow me when I'm mowing the yard or in the garden, and maybe I get mad, I'm hot and sweaty, and I yell at the kids. You may get a different view of me. And you may not think all that highly. It's easy to think highly of somebody when they're standing up in front and they know people are going to come look at them. In the Bible, we need to look at everything it has to say about God. And this is what we're looking at here. So, what Jesus read in, in Luke chapter 4, here is where he reads from, look at Isaiah 61, starting at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Is there any change so far? Identical. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And right there is where Jesus stopped reading in Luke. And in Luke, what did he do? He closed the scroll. He handed it back to that kid who handed it to him. And he said, this day is this fulfilled in your ears. Absolutely true. Why did Jesus stop reading where he did? Exactly right. Look at what it says after that. Comma, and, that means it's included. And, the day of vengeance of our God. When Jesus came to be crucified, to pay the penalty for sin, to become salvation, he was not there to perform vengeance on anybody. It doesn't mean that someday he won't. In fact, when we read Revelation, it is called the day of his wrath. He's very angry. He is there to root the sinner out of the earth. This is why we came here to this. Everything has meaning in the Bible. Every name, every place, every river, everything. When Jesus stood up to read in Luke, he was quoting from this verse. And it makes me wonder. Those Jewish people knew a lot about Scripture. They, they had it memorized in many cases. Did they know where he stopped quoting? Makes me wonder. Did they think, why, why did he stop reading there, close the book and say, this day it's fulfilled in your ears. We have the benefit of being 2,000 years later and we saw he came here to make sure he paid the penalty for our sin. To pave the way for salvation. To purchase our redemption. And now we read, at the end of our Bible, some things that sound harsh. It especially sounds harsh if people have only, only their whole life read the Gospels. They don't know God as revealed in the Old Testament. They don't know God as revealed in some of the epistles and the book of Revelation where he confronts sin, where he deals with someone who has not repented. 
And I think you get a hint of it at what Jesus read in Luke chapter 4 in the Gospel. At that time, His purpose on earth was to do what? Pay for sin. And make sure salvation was available to mankind. After that, after that, we may very well, in fact, I think biblically speaking, I think we just need to affirm it and say we will see what Psalm 61 verse 2 says, and the day of vengeance of our God. This whole thing, we started with names, and we were looking at the Old Testament appearances of Jesus. And why, if it is Jesus, why would they not call him Jesus in the Old Testament? I think you can make a biblical case. At that time in the Old Testament, he was not there to be crucified. Nobody was going to grab him. We know Jacob maybe wrestled with him. We know Moses talked to him out of that burning bush. But no one was going to grab him and put him on the cross, yet it wasn't his time. Even while he was here, remember, they were going to throw him off a cliff once. He walked right through the middle of them. His parents came and said, what are you doing here? We we, we traveled three days' journey. Where have you been? He said, I've been about my father's business. He was doing what he came to do. And he talked about his time when his time came of being on that cross. When you look at the Bible from beginning to end, and now you see the plan of God, he had this his son with him, performing, behaving, carrying out his will all through the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, mankind did finally get to visually see him with their eyes, touch him, handle him. And at that time, his purpose was to make sure he paid the penalty for sin. After that, doesn't mean he doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't even mean that his work in all of time is finished. It doesn't, it, it doesn't imply that at all. His work for salvation is, but he has a work for a thousand years on this earth where he rules and reigns. Psalm chapter 2 says, God, his father, has given him the heathen for his inheritance. That means the whole earth. All the kingdoms are his. He he bought them. He purchased them. Remember when he was in the wilderness and Satan tempted him, he said, you fall down and worship me, and all the kingdoms of the earth, I'll give them to you. He said he showed them to him in a minute of time. And Satan, Jesus didn't seem to refute that claim, that Satan kind of had that. But see, he went and he won it. He didn't do what Adam did where he worshipped the wrong thing or he sinned, transgressed against God. He followed God's commandment to be obedient unto death. The Bible teaches he won the keys of death, hell, and the grave. When he comes back, he's going to use that key. He's going to have the rights of ownership. He'll be carrying the title deed. In Revelation, it paints that picture. There's a sealed book that nobody can open except the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That slaying of the Lamb, he earned something with that. He earned the legal right to own planet Earth. When he comes back, that's, that's his new job description. And now you learn at the end there, he, he's coming back with a new name. Makes me wonder if he may be a little upset that Dirty Harry's already taken. Bad example. But when Jesus comes back, 
he may not be called lamb anymore. He was when he came the first time. That was a pretty good description, wasn't it? Because he became obedient unto death. He allowed them to pierce him, crucify him. I don't think that that is going to be his nature when he comes back the next time. Just like you see in the Bible, when a name changes, what also changes? Kind of the essence of that person, their behavior, their destiny of what's going to be taking place in their life is altered dramatically. Guess who else gets a new name? <laughs> All of us. You may think down here, God, I don't even feel like I'm at home. And you shouldn't feel at home here. You feel like you, you don't have a future. You, sometimes if you feel a little uh, uneasy about what's coming around the corner, Know what you're getting in heaven. It all starts new. Not only all starts new, God hands us this thing. Nobody can change that. That name is written in stone. It's written in stone. And we'll probably have a description that we will be pretty happy about. Especially if we do as Jesus commanded. Occupy until I come. Father, we pray that what we've read in our Bible, that it would take root in us. And we pray, Lord, that each one of us would be encouraged and strengthened, that we would be a bold representative and ambassador for you in this earth. Lord, we pray that each one of us would be strengthened at heart, and in spirit, and in our mind. Help each one of us have a wonderful week. Show yourself real unto each one of us, Lord. And be with pastor as he travels home. In Jesus' name, amen.